This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Discover, something brighter. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. One in five U.S. adults report feeling high levels of psychological distress because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Experts say prioritizing mental health, well-being, and empathy will be crucial as society reckons with the long-term consequences brought on by these challenging times. In this episode of our ongoing series, The Optimist, Karamo Brown, host of Queer Eye, joins Washington Post Live to discuss his advocacy around mental health and advice on how to adjust to our new normal as society reopens. Let's listen. Hi, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robin Gabon, senior critic at large, and welcome to today's program, The Optimist. Joining me is Karamo Brown. He's an author, and he's also one of the hosts of Netflix's Emmy award-winning show, Queer Eye. Thank you for joining me, Karamo. <laughs> I'm happy to be here, Robin. First of all, can I, I like to just always, whatever comes to my mind first, if especially if it's great or positive, that red lip looks amazing on you. So just want to throw that out there. You look, you look stunned, okay? We're starting off this interview right. Well, thank you very much. And at this point, you can do no wrong. So there you go. <laughs> Well, I think everyone really knows you from uh, the Netflix series from Queer Eye, but you are a therapist, a psychotherapist. And I am just sort of curious to know how you came to that choice, how you arrived there. Um, working in social services actually came from or and helping people and counseling in those different areas. For me, actually came from um, high school. I was a peer counselor in high school, um, and I originally joined peer counseling because of two reasons. I was first, you could get out of class, and so even though I was a good student, I always used to like to be the one to roam the hallways. And secondly, I was nosy. And so I used to be wanting to be in everybody's business. I wanted to know what everybody was talking about. And so I was like, oh, what better way? But then as I started to help people and see my classmates in high school, and I'm talking about ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, have a moment with me before they actually talk to the school counselor or to an actual you know, therapist or someone, I would see how they would actually just feel so comforted and knowing that someone was there to support them, just be there for them, to listen to them, to say, I see you. And it made me feel powerful because it was like, I have, I have a gift here to help somebody feel as if they're better. And as I just kept getting older, I realized that my greatest joy came from seeing other people smile and be happy. And so it started out of this desire to be nosy and miss class and turned into something that now we're on The Optimist on Washington Post. <laughs> well, I've often heard that part of learning to become a therapist is that you go through some form of therapy yourself so that you sort of understand the process. but. And I'm wondering if you if you did that, but also I do know that you have sort of purposefully um, gone through therapy to work through, you know, your own issues with anxiety or um, perhaps pessimism. Can you just sort of talk about your own experiences with with therapy? Oh, sure. Therapy for me has always been something that I encourage myself to seek because I grew up in a household where my parents are. I'm first-generation American. My family is from Jamaica and Cuba. And um, 
there were certain individuals in my family, especially my father, who subscribed to some of those ideals that, you know, you don't go to therapy, you don't talk to other people about your problems. And so for me, it was always like, I knew somewhere in the back of my mind um, that you have to talk about what you're going through. You have to discuss and be open with it. And it was something that I had to fight against the narratives that were around me, because I think that's an important key for anyone listening. Sometimes we think about being an optimist, seeking help, taking care of our mental health, health as something that's going to be an easy task. But unfortunately, we make physical fitness more important and accessible than we do mental fitness. And so you have to actually go on a harder journey or, or a more challenging journey to find the courage and find the resources to actually, you know, to get the mental health that you need, help mental health support that you need. And so for me, it was very early on. I knew to do it in high school. I would always be that one that would go to the counselor and be like, I'm just checking in. And I know my counselor at the time was like, wow. And I was like, I just, I just know that I need to be here. I just know that right now, like, I'm having a little anxiety with this, my SATs or whatever, and I just want to talk. And, you know, they were always open to it. But I would go in there often to say, I understand that my mental health is important. And then the minute that I was in um, high school, I mean, in, in college and grad school, I knew immediately that therapy was something very important for me. Outside of, you know, working in social services and training and doing all these things, I also knew for me, because I battled with depression, anxiety, and just battling the negative narratives that were constantly being told to me, unconsciously and consciously, that I didn't even realize were affecting me. And I say this to say to anyone out there, you're receiving messages from people in your lives that you love, that support you, that could be saying something to you that you don't even realize is breaking you down. And you have to be able to learn how to identify that so that way you can fight against those negative narratives that all of a sudden will become your story. Um, I say this to give you just one example of this. I had extreme anxiety about going out in the sun. Sounds crazy. But it's because in my household, colorism um, was really big. Like, my family was like, you cannot get darker. You have to be lighter. Um, mm. Which, to some people, might sound crazy. But to me, as someone from the Caribbean and African-American culture, we understand colorism. And I used to get to the place where if I was outside and it was like the sun was beaming on me and I couldn't find a shade, I'd be like, okay, my grandmother's going to be so mad. And I didn't realize that my grandmother, who was one of the most supportive women in my life, had instilled in me this sort of anxiety and this sort of distress about who I was. And so when I say all these things to say, that's why therapy was always important for me to go after, because it allowed me to focus on what was going on, but also gave me the tools to challenge it and to be the optimist and to be someone who could spread more joy to other people. Just in, in leaping off of that story that you told, I mean, that is, um, you know, I understand that and it is, but it is very specific to a community. And I wonder if that is in some ways one of the reasons why it's important for there to be diversity in therapy, to inclusivity among therapists so that people can find someone who understands those particular nuances of culture. Yes, yes, yes. It's so important because as you as you know, like literally I, the thing is, is that you'll go to someone who might not understand your experiences and they will give you all the help that they can give you based on their training. But training actually is amplified when you have personal experiences where you can identify or relate to what the individual is going through. 
So for me to be able to say, I understand colorisms, I understand what it is for someone who's part of the LGBTQIA community, I understand so many different things, it gives me an opportunity to understand the individuals that I'm helping in a different way. Not saying that someone else could not help them, but it allows me to have a deeper understanding and maybe be able to help them to understand their challenges and receive the tools to overcome those challenges quicker. And so for me, it was, it, I think it's so important to have diversity within any mental health or you know, as with therapists, with doctors, with anyone, because you need that. And I will say this to anyone out there who is with a doctor, therapist, anyone who does not see them or does not take their concerns seriously or is not addressing their concerns as you would like. It is okay to find another. I think we get into this mental, this cycle where we think like, oh, this is my doctor for years or this is my dentist for years or this is my therapist for years. I might as well keep going back. But the thing is, is that you have the opportunity to Find someone new who's going to be able to identify. I remember the first time I started to seek out a therapist. I, I went to the first one and I thought, this is where I need to stay. I found one, this is where you go. And I remember the first time someone said to me, you know, it's okay to shop around. You know, it's okay to go to different ones and find the one that's going to fit for you. And it sounds like such a crazy thing because it was the same thing with my first doctor. My first doctor was not a gay man. Um, or part of the LGBT community and didn't have any understanding of the LGBT community. And so I went there to talk about an experience I was having with my body and was saying, can you help me? And I remember distinctly this man saying to me, oh, yeah, 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 don't worry about that. And I was like, did you just tell me not to worry about my health? And he was not mm -hmm. trying to be malicious or vicious in any way. He just didn't understand. And so that's why diversity is so important. Um, and as we see in, like, not to keep flipping back from therapy to also medical, but that's why we see sometimes numbers of Black women in the hospital after birth who pass away because the doctors or nurses don't understand their experiences and aren't paying attention to the care that they need. And so it's important for there to be people who look like you, who understand your experiences, who are taking care of you as well. I mean, oftentimes people are in need of therapy and perhaps are reluctant to go or feel uncomfortable going. And you told a story, I think you were in college or maybe just after, and you, even though you had experience and had studied psychotherapy, um, it really took a roommate, I think, to sort of say to you, um, or actually to say to your mother, that mm -hmm. I think you need to talk to Karamo. I mean, is that sort of instructive on how to help someone who may not perhaps recognize their own need? 100%. You know, I tell people all the time, check in on your strongest friends, because we sometimes assume those who are the strongest, those who have the most knowledge, those are the ones who always have the answers, um, can identify things for themselves. And I was a prime example. Though I'm working in this field, I have the training. I had gotten so far into my own depression and anxiety that I couldn't even see past the cloud that I was in to say, I need to get help right now. There have been many moments in my life, majority of the moments, but there have been some where I needed the help and assistance of someone else to recognize that I needed help. And I think it's an important thing for us to realize that even those who um, are, are giving the help need to still get help. You know, I have a podcast called Karamo on the site called Luminary. And, you know, one of my guests is a gentleman by the name of Jay Shetty, who is the most one of the most amazing people ever. And Jay and I talked about um, the stigma that therapists get for seeing other therapists. 
Because people say, well, if you're a therapist, why are you going to go see someone else? It's like, you're supposed to already have all the answers. And that's not realistic. As human beings, we all need to help. A doctor needs to go to a doctor. You know, a lawyer will need another lawyer. A therapist will need another therapist. And that is okay. Um, and I think people need to get to that understanding that for people who are in those fields, they constantly need to check in on their own well-being because you're taking on a lot. But also, it's okay for people to get that continued help. And I would suggest to someone, if you have a therapist who is getting continuous um, guidance or help, not because there's some other issue, but like because they're just making sure that they're always checking with themselves, for me, that's a, a big sign that like this person's healthy, this person's doing the work, I want to go with them. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, it's, it was important for me. I was just going to jump on that and say that, you know, this, the last 15 months, like even now, um, during the, the pandemic, um, you know, I sort of joke that therapists are going to be really busy, uh, you know, when, when lockdown ends, because, you know, people had to deal with isolation, they had to deal with sort of existential fears. I mean, how did you maintain your sense of optimism during the, the, the darkest periods of the pandemic? Well, I maintained it by not pretending that every moment had to be perfect. And I think that we can get into a space where optimism can become a crutch and an unhealthy crutch, where it's like, I'm taking every moment and thinking everything has to be great. But part of what makes optimism and knowing that things will be great is identifying that in a moment, things are not okay. And saying that I have the resources, I have the love for myself, I have the love from others to get through this. See, that's the part that's the optimistic part in that. It's I know I can get through this by identifying that there is something here, but there is support around me. And for me, that was big. I didn't wake up and say, you know what? It's gonna be great. Like, wow, everything's phenomenal. I'm just gonna pretend. It was like, no, today, I don't think that I have the capacity to do X, Y, and Z. Or today, I don't know how I'm processing what I'm feeling in this moment. So I need to take a moment for myself and know that things will get better. And that's really how I did it and how I encouraged other people. I was like, don't get on here and start saying, like, everything's fine. We're all going to make it out of the pandemic. Things are great. Yeah, I believe that. I do believe that. But also give people a space to talk about what they're actually feeling because that's going to lead them to be more optimistic. You told this great story about taking, you know, one of many Zoom meetings and, you know, when the inevitable greeting is offered of, oh, how are you, that your response was, well, today I'm feeling a little bit anxious. And while I'm really prepared and ready for this meeting, if I don't seem as enthusiastic as I normally would be, you understand why. I mean, how do you draw that line between, you know, trying to be somewhat honest with people and, you know, sort of modulating their expectations without, you know, sort of being the whiny one. Yeah, well, see, that's the thing that you just said is the problem that I have with our culture. And, and I understand your question. You weren't saying this. So um, but our culture puts this sort of emphasis or creates this idea that if expressing how you're feeling in a professional setting makes you the whiny one. We first committed this sort of idea to women. And it was it's the most sexist and horrible thing of like, if a woman cries in a meeting, all of a sudden she's dramatic and she's something else and blah, blah, blah. And then it started to sort of just spread beyond that. And so I think that idea that we have of like, 
if you talk about what you're feeling, that somehow it's going to make you less capable of doing your job. That's not true. Me being able to express what I'm feeling is going to actually help me to navigate my job better because the people I'm working with now understand how I'm working and how I'm identifying all the projects and what I have to do. And I think that we should stop looking at vulnerability as a negativity in conversations and in professional settings and start looking at it as something that's going to enhance productivity. Because any moment that I've been down at work and I've been able to say, hey, I'm not okay, I need to take 10 minutes, that's when I'm able to go recharge and come back and be better. But the moments that I've had to pretend that everything was fine is the moments that I find myself not being as productive. I'm back at my desk thinking about all the other things that's on my mind. So I think we should think about uh, people being vulnerable and talking about what they're feeling and stop doing this autopilot. I'm okay. Like, we got to stop it. You know what I mean? It's okay. Like, I, when people ask me all the time on the street, like, how are you? And I'm like, oh. I'm, I'm not okay today, but that doesn't mean that I'm looking for some, some you know, sympathy or anything right now. I just want to express that right now, I don't have the capacity to do certain things, and, you know, it's okay. I'll be fine through this, and if I need support, I might ask. And people always are shocked by that. They're like, oh, okay, well, thank you for sharing. But now they don't have this sort of pressure to feel like they have to now solve my problem, because I identify, I don't need to solve my problem. I just want to express to you that I'm not feeling okay. It makes me healthier. It makes my conversations, interpersonal relationships healthier. And I think people should start to practice that and find the courage to do that. Well, it also seems like one of the reasons that we respond that way or people respond that way is because we are, as a culture, we're not very good at sort of sitting in discomfort. And there is a tendency that if someone says that they're not okay, that there's an ex there's this feeling of, oh, I need to fix that. Or there's an expectation that you're supposed to fix it when in mm -hmm. fact the, the desire could simply be, let me just express it and sit with it and that's okay. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I would say to you, I agree with you, but I believe that there is a part of our culture that actually could get us, that could, if we focused on, could actually show us that we do have the capacity. And I use this example a lot for people. When we talk about our physical fitness or our physical fitness journeys, we can we feel so encouraged to talk about that. And no one feels like they have to solve it for us. Example. December 31st, you have now joined a gym, you start a new diet plan, you are like ready to go to work tomorrow and be like, girl, that's my salad, I'm hitting the treadmill tomorrow, I just got a cute outfit. It's the truth, we all do it. And we're very excited for that moment. And no one in there feels like, I have to solve your weight loss journey, I have to solve your health journey. No one. Everyone just says, go for it, oh my gosh, yes, I wanna join you. So there is a capacity in us when it comes to talking about our mental health and our mental fitness, to be able to know that we don't have to take it on because we do it with our physical fitness. And so it's important for us to sort of say, oh, when someone's coming in and saying, this is how I'm feeling, that's like them telling me this is my salad. If they say, hey, I'm going to a therapist, that's them telling me I'm going to the gym. You don't have to take it on, allow them the space just to share, and maybe it would encourage you to go on your own journey as well, the same way we do with fitness. And I use that sort of analogy in a way of saying, Look at that. You don't get the pressure on yourself to feel like you got to take someone else's problem on. So why do it here when I'm just talking about my mental health? Just know it's okay for all of us to talk about it. And we don't have to feel this pressure in our society that I have to solve it. I have to be uncomfortable. No, it's okay. It's something we're all experiencing, all dealing with. We can handle this.
One of the other, well, the other huge issue that people have been grappling with recently has been issues of social justice as it relates to race, as it relates to gender. And the whole notion of allyship and understanding, um, it, often, it so often falls to those who are perhaps the most affected, the most stressed about issues it often falls them to them to also explain those issues, to, to moderate a conversation. Um, how do you advise people on, on both sides of that conversation to yeah. maintain this sort of optimistic belief that we can move forward, but not putting the burden overwhelmingly on one side or the other? Yeah, well, um, the first thing is that for me, I actually do believe the burden now needs to shift to the other side. So whoever is being oppressed needs to no longer feel that burden. And I think we need to start having that conversation a lot more clearly. Um, and this is for me, because the unfortunate part is when we talk about sexism, sexism is not gonna be solved without men finally getting together and realizing our negative behavior. Um, racism is not gonna be solved without though white people getting together and saying, no, we need to talk about this. We need to start having these conversations in school and everywhere else, um, in our corporations. Um, and not just one time a month or whatever. These conversations need to be happening. The Those who are in the LGBTQIA community, the trans community, we need to be looking at those who are straight and saying, look at the inequalities because the, the pressure and burden should be on you. Um, because I do think it's important now that people understand they have the capacity to learn. It's not a burden for you to learn and do the work every single day to find more education. Because I think sometimes when people think about these concepts of race, sex, gender, um, sexual orientation, they get overwhelmed, especially if they are on the side that needs to do the learning. But we have to understand that we have now, we live in a society where we all have these beautiful little things right here. Sorry, my phone, a, a picture of my son coming up. Um, <laughs> we, uh, that's, you know, a dad, I just have a picture of my kids on my phone. But um, No, no I, need to apologize for that. Exactly. <laughs> Though I'm getting in trouble, side note, let me get back to this. My son's key, I have to keep switching it because every week my son says, well, why do you have the other one on there? Why do you have the other one? And I'm like, I put a photo of both of you and you both didn't like the photo. And so now I'm switching back and forth. Anyway, um, unnecessary <laughs> drama. So I will say, I think it is at a point where people understand that it's okay to find education. It's okay to look up things on your phone every single day in the comfort of your home. That's where it begins and that's where the burden starts to come off of those who have been holding that burden, feeling like they always have to explain, feel like they always have to do the work. I am not a woman. I don't identify as a woman, but I find myself at least three to five times a week trying to learn more about what all of my female friends, what you know, women go through learning book, reading books. I do the same thing with the trans community. I'm not a trans man. I'm not part of the trans community. And so I'm constantly trying to learn, well, what can I do to support the trans community? I'm not going to my trans friends and saying, hey, you teach me. I'm saying, I know you're being oppressed and I have certain privileges. How can I benefit and help you? And that is my duty. Because on the flip side, what I'm doing as someone who works in this mental health field is trying to say to those who are constantly being oppressed, like, we need to talk about the post-traumatic stress disorder that you're going to experience that you don't even realize. And I take this back to, like, thinking about 2020 and just all, period. I grew up at a time where I wasn't seeing on my phone from morning to night in repeat someone dying on the streets. My sons did. 
And it, as much as I try to control their phones and control their what they intake, unfortunately, I just can't because of the way media is nowadays. And so we got to think about this. There's a generation that has seen people die in the streets on loop. We have no idea the, the, the PTSD, the mental health ramifications that are going to be happening for this generation, much less us, but our kids who are now sometimes being desensitized, who are, are there's so many things that I've talked about, and I don't want to go into detail, that for me, my priority is to really help those individuals focus on what are the things that are happening to them mentally and emotionally that they're not even understanding now that is going to pop up in the middle of a conversation, in the middle of a traffic, in the middle of work, two years from now, 10 years from now, because you're seeing the things you're seeing. So I want to encourage this side to say, it's important for you to now do the work to educate yourself every single day. That's your homework. That is your task. And for everyone else on this side who is being oppressed, it's time for you to really look at how are these things affecting you long term, because they are. As you've been able to travel around, uh, you know, for the for the series for for Queer Eye, I mean, you guys land in um, some pretty um, interesting locations. I mean, that's have you that's a, put it? That's a sweet way to put it. <laughs> As has that experience um, enhanced your sense of optimism and what people are capable of embracing, or has it sort of made you feel somewhat? concern for the, the future of the country. I feel so optimistic for the future of our country because traveling around on Queer Eye, also doing speaking engagements, also just having people reach out to me on in my direct messages, I realize that people do have a desire to learn and to grow. And I realize that the more we talk, the more that growth comes. And for me, one of my greatest skills is that I'm a very, I'm an empathetic listener. And so I'm able to hear what people are saying even underneath their words. Like, what are the emotions that are you're really trying to express that you're feeling? And every time I interact with someone who you would assume has the different views than me, who has done something that can be seen as horrible, there's always this capacity by through talking to them, I can help them to understand that they can grow. And I've seen it happen over and over again. And I, I think for me, what is great is that my patience helps me to understand that growth doesn't happen on my timeline. And as much as I like it to, it does not. And so for me, I understand that like, oh, there's a capacity for someone to grow here the more we talk, but it might take you a little bit longer than it's going to take this person. And that keeps me optimistic because I see the growth, whether it's slow or whether it's fast. I know that we'll get there. And I look at the things that I experienced when I was a kid and when I was younger, when my parents were younger, my grandparents tell me stories. And things are slowly getting better. It's progress, not perfection. And I believe that we'll continue to get there. Um, and so that so does keep me optimistic. Sorry, you mentioned oh, no. that uh, that Texas was particularly challenging, and not to malign Texas, it's a lovely state, uh, mm -hmm. but that you were really struck by sort of the bluntness with which people, some people, dealt with you. And do you think it yeah. was sort of the state, or do you think it was more just the timing that this is a period in which people feel more comfortable? saying whatever might be on their mind. I think it's I think it's a bit of each of these things, but I also think it's a lack of exposure to di people who are different, and I, whether that's racially, um, whether that's their gender, whether that's sexual orientation. And I think that we've now spent um, 
we've spent now five years with someone who I consider to be um, a genius, and let me say this very right before this gets picked up and get wrong, a genius in manipulating the media. You know, Donald Trump did a, was able to really use the media to spread whatever he wanted to spread. And when you have someone who's in a community or town that doesn't have eye diversity, then of course that becomes their truth because they're not experiencing something else. You know, I just had a conversation before we left Texas with someone who was like, well, you know, black people can be racist to white people. And I, I really was like, let me put my empathetic listening ears on. Let me put let me put my training cap on and, you know, not just go into this and say, well, why do you feel that way? And they were like, well, I grew up, I've been in black communities or Latino communities where they, you know, said things to me about like, I can't dance, I can't do this, you know, and that's like being racist to me, you know what I mean? And I was like, is that being racist or is that being prejudiced? And the response I got from these individuals was like, well, what's the difference? Which is a clear difference that I don't think individuals who are not in diverse communities who are also listening to this hateful rhetoric from someone who is manipulating the media, there it, it confuses the situation. And so, yes, in Texas, I came across these individuals because they weren't aware. Their community is all white. Their school is all white. Their classrooms are all white. Every Your grocery stores are all white. You only interact with maybe one African-American, one Latino, maybe one gay person, no trans people, maybe one Asian person. Of course, everything to you is white, that when you receive anything that's what you feel is opposition, of course you're going to say, well, that's racist to me too. But racism means that there's a systemic issue, and I'm not explaining this to you, obviously, for anyone listening, that means that I'm being oppressed systemically. Prejudice means that I might feel a certain way about something you do, and that's a difference. You as a white person not being um, oppressed and I am. And I think when I was able to have that conversation with this individual, I saw their mind go, oh, 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 I can get a bank loan easily. You can't. Oh, this, my schools get are better funded. Yours aren't. Oh, I'm understanding now why racism and why prejudice are two different things. And then when I see that clicks, it does make me feel optimistic about the world we're living in. But I also understand that that's why certain communities, you know, don't don't learn and don't talk about these things and don't grow as quick as we need them to. And that's not a, a pass or giving them an excuse. It's just a reality. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid that we are going to have to leave it there because uh, we are out of time. But thank you so much for Karamo Brown for being with me this afternoon or almost. I mean, it feels like it's evening because it's raining so much in Washington. <laughs> but it's very well, dark. I this has been amazing um, to be with you. And if I could leave your audience with one thing, I, something that I hold true to my heart, which is um, um, I tell my kids this all the time. Comparison is the thief of joy. As you're walking through this life, our mental health and the things that are hurting us is because we look at other people and see and say, we're not good enough. We don't have what they have. And I want people to know that you should be happy and love your own life. Everything that you have is perfectly designed for you. Everything how you look is perfectly designed for you. Don't compare yourself to others because your journey is exactly where you're supposed to be on. And you can get everything you need just by working and asking for help and knowing that you're enough. And I just want to leave that with everyone who's out there. That is a lovely note to end on. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I would like to invite uh, everyone to please uh, go to WashingtonPostLive.com where you can register and find information about upcoming programming. Thank you so much.
Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.